Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Hannah Freeman from Ropes and Gray. I will be serving as one of the panelists. I'm Terrence Burek. I am on King and Spalding's FDA and Life Sciences practice group. Jared Duncan with RS Oncology. Hi, I'm Nikki Hadass. I am the general counsel at Acubia Therapeutics. Hi, and I'm Chris Bellin. I'm the chief legal officer at Beam Therapeutics. Great. So the structure of our panel today, um, we thought we would uh, lead off with a brief introduction from each of our in-house panelists. Um, and then throughout the panel, we do have a number of questions that we've received um, that we've prepared answers to. But frankly, you know, we, we would very much encourage people to submit questions to the Q&A function. Um, and we're happy to uh, use those instead to guide the discussion. The, main point of this discussion is to make sure that it is as relevant to the participants as possible. And so um, for all of the questions that, you know, if we can get questions live, that would be great. So please feel free to submit those as we go. Um, but for now, I'll, Nikki, I'll turn it over to you to give a brief introduction and also a, a summary of some of the things you've been seeing at Akibia. Sure. Thanks, Hannah and Terrence. Thanks to the BBA. This is a great topic, um, very timely, obviously, and very important. Um, so as I mentioned, I am the um, General Counsel at Akibia Therapeutics in Cambridge. Uh, we have about um, 350 employees, and our company is focused on developing therapies for patients with chronic kidney disease. We have a product in development in phase three, as well as a product on the market, a commercial product. So we're a bit uniquely positioned in that um, we do have um, a commercial product and that product is for patients who are immune compromised kidney disease patients who are really at risk during this pandemic and who um, have to go to, if they're on dialysis, they have to go to dialysis clinics to be dialyzed, which obviously puts them at greater risk. So in addition to um, all of the issues we're dealing with as a company with respect to our employees having to work from home, um, et cetera, we're also trying to think about um, the patients we serve and how we can help them during this crisis. You know, we, we were talking as a panel before um, the call started, and I will say as general counsel, it's a, a bit overwhelming at the moment. There's a lot of information out there. There are these great stimulus packages that are being passed, and a lot of them contain um, provisions that can really help our company, both on the financial side as well as help our patients. And you know, trying to make our way through all of this um, new legislation and, and understand it and see how it can benefit our company um, is a bit overwhelming when you're also trying to obviously run a business every day. So um, I'm sure many of you are struggling with this as well. And for those of you who are at law firms, you're trying to help your clients do this. So I sympathize with that. And I thank you because the law firms have been extremely helpful during this time in helping us digest all of this information. Um, so that's kind of where we are. That's, that's a general overview um, in terms of um, essential employees and, and what we're doing there. Um, we have decided to um, interpret this kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. So while we don't have um, employees who we've specifically designated as essential, we're looking at it on a project basis. So someone who might be essential today because of the work going on at the company might not be essential tomorrow. So we don't have employees that are going into the office every day, um, but we have employees going in on occasion depending on the needs of the business. And that seems to be working relatively well. 
I'm happy to answer any questions um, about how we are um, operating during this time um, and advice that I've received. Obviously, I can't give any legal advice, but I'm happy to share what I've learned with all of you. You want to go next, Anna? Sure, that sounds great. And um, please feel free to submit questions as we go. So again, uh, Jared Duncan, I'm, I serve as the CEO and general counsel for RS Oncology. We're a very unique company. We outsource nearly 90% of all activities. So during this crisis, we've actually found that more people are available to us than otherwise would be because they're mostly work from home vendors uh, internationally and in the United States. So we focus on mesothelioma and ovarian right now. We are preclinical still. We're hoping to be in the clinic this year, uh, very soon actually. This has slowed us down quite a bit. I'll talk a little bit about the clinical trial aspect if people would like to hear that. But for the most part, um, our operations are in the UK, uh, US, Spain, and Israel. And I was recently in Israel as late as the end of January, haven't traveled since. Um, that has come to a complete halt. However, what we have been fortunate with, all drug manufacturing activities have uh, continued. So Israel is still, um, is still working, Spain is still working, even though both Barcelona and Madrid are under almost complete lockdown, our facilities are, are still going. So that's, um, that's been very fortunate. The only thing that's really slowed down on drug manufacturing is the shipping. Some of the airlines um, are not providing as many routes or as much frequency for travel. So that has slowed down a little bit. Um, we have about three employees, so all employees are working from home. Uh, you can see a nice picture behind me I learned today from Christine how to do a virtual background. That is exceptional. <laughs> that is that is my uh, kitchen window uh, about a week ago. So uh, luckily it's all gone. Uh, some other things I wanted to talk about were some of the labs we use. So we, work, we use labs in the United States. Both are academic labs. As you can imagine, both are completely shut down. Uh, we are able to get some non-essential or essential activities at those labs to continue. One thing we've done is we've been working on some of the corona testing with some of our compounds in our library to see if there's anything that can be helpful. So that's one thing we've done outside of our normal scope. Um, it's quite fascinating to, uh, to see the, the many companies all getting together right now and, and putting resources together to try to, to battle this, uh, this crisis. So some things are still going on, some things have slowed, but for the most part, we are, we're still moving. I do expect a clinical trial slowdown later this year. Uh, right now, we've made a decision not to speak with any of our PIs and any of the hospitals, give them a chance to, to recover over the next few months and then hopefully get right back into uh, enrollment for patients uh, end of summer, early fall, and just give a break to the hospitals right now. And I'm happy to answer any questions about any, any aspects. Um, I know in the United States, a lot of the trials are on hold unless they're critical and the patients are in need and, and those drugs are continuing to be administered, but it's, it's become a hospital decision on a lot of those clinical trials. So I guess if there are no questions, I'll go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about BEAM. Um, so BEAM is a newly public preclinical precision genetic medicine company um, focused on base editing. We have about 130 employees and we're based in Cambridge. Um, so most of our, um, most of the company is in R&D. So there's only so much that we can do without people going into the labs. 
And we're like a lot of biotechs in Cambridge. Um, you know, we, we tried to maximize, you know, rent is really expensive. So we tried to maximize space. So if everyone was in the office and we were all at our desks, we would be violating the social distancing guidelines. So obviously, you know, we had to, you know, when, when we first started um, thinking about this, we sent all um, basically the entire GNA staff home and we mandated that the whole GNA staff work from home. We do have a handful of people going into the lab still. Um, so because there's so few, you know, we feel that they can do that safely, you know, with social distancing. Um, but even beyond that, we have people working in shifts so that we can clean in between people because um, a lot of people have to use the same equipment. So what we do is we have cleaning crews come in after one shift, they clean everything down and then the next shift comes in. So um, we've done a lot to try to protect our employees that way. The other concern we have is because so many of our employees are so young, you know, a lot of them don't have their own cars. So um, for any employee who couldn't, who, who was taking public transportation, we said, if you do have a car, we'll pay for your parking. If you don't have a car, we'll pay for Uber. And I realize that's still not perfect, but at least it allows them to get to and from the office without using public transportation. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like we've done what we can to um, for the safety of our employees. Um, what this is obviously going to do is it, you know, we can't do as much R&D when people aren't going into the labs. So, you know, we're worried about our R&D efforts slowing down. Because of all the shipping delays, we're worried about um, key materials not getting to and from our labs. Um, and we're worried about, you know, not being able to visit our CROs and, um, you know, you know, we just did a financing, so we're fortunate there, but, um, you know, obviously this hasn't been great for our stock price, so we're already concerned about what our next financing looks like. So those are just some of the concerns um, that we have right now. And um, like Nikki, I just want to send a shout out to all the law firms, because as Nikki said, you know, we're, we're trying to, basically we have our day, we have our day jobs, and now we're trying to absorb all of the new, new rules and regulations around this. So the law firms have been tremendously helpful in sort of boiling everything down to digestible pieces and sort of feeding them to us. So I'll stop there for now. Thanks, Chris. Um, so I think on that, that note, I know that one of the hot topics is resources for the CARES Act and finding um, small business assistance. And so I wonder, um, in addition, you know, the law firms have been trying to pull things together and make those um, as user-friendly as possible because there is sort of an inundation of information and coordinating things into, you know, microsites that have um, resources all in one place. Um, what resources have you guys found are most helpful um, when interpreting the CARES Act and being able to take advantage of the small business assistance? Sure, I'm happy to answer that. So yeah, I think we're all kind of scrambling to learn this on the fly. Um, almost every law firm has put out guidances. Obviously, some are better than others. But um, what I found is, you know, different law firms have different strengths, right? So for example, the law firms I use for, you know, healthcare reimbursement issues for our product, I'll usually kind of look to them for um, help in interpreting provisions in the CARES Act around reimbursement because I know they have that expertise. So, you know, if you kind of use certain firms for certain things, um, usually they have the expertise at that firm to help interpret that provision of the CARES Act, but they've all put out great guidances. Um, BIO has a, um, 
COVID-19 resources page that's really useful. Um, and I've also found that the actual agencies, um, for example, the IRS has put out some guidance around the tax credits that are part of the CARES Act, and they have some FAQs um, on their website that are actually pretty helpful, and you're going kind of directly to the source. Um, so I, I found those to be helpful resources as well. I don't know, Christine and Jared, if you've used any others that you've liked. Yeah, and what I find especially helpful actually are the um, on the law firm websites. They generally have, you know, um, they put a lot of material there. The webinars are great, but um, you know, even before this, I had a lot of meetings, and now we're all so eager to keep in touch with each other. I feel like I'm pretty much in a Zoom meeting from 7:30 a.m. through 6 p.m. So it's really great to be able to look at the the resources when I can. So that's that's been especially helpful for me. We we've seen um, uh, an uptick in collaboration requests from some of our. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. A medicinal chemistry team uh, has been putting out some requests for grants coming from from the act and and qualifying for some money. And and you know as a private company with funding, you you step back and say, well, how long is it going to take? You know, how how much effort is going to go into applying for this and we've got eight weeks here and we've got another eight weeks there and then we got proofs of concept before we're anywhere and you know we're in the middle of this crisis so how can we speed it up so right now i think that uh, we haven't taken that advantage of any of that yet maybe we will in the in the long term if this continues for a while but certainly the law firms have been putting out and i, I agree with christine 100 the and, and nikki the the law firms that put out the the blurbs the flyers the the short summaries those are much more helpful than sitting on a two-hour webinar um, and trying, trying to figure it all out live speaking when you can just read it. So that's what we've been doing. Yeah, as from the law firm perspective, I know that we're a lot of firms, just like King Spalding, all have COVID dedicated pages that we're trying to dump as much information and boil it down for you guys. And I think what Nikki, one of the things that Nikki said that was real important to focus on is the government agencies are working incredibly hard on putting out new resources and guidances. And those are the agencies obviously that are at the other end that are looking at your drugs, that are gonna be doing inspections, that you have the obligations to. And so looking at their pages and a lot of the agencies have now created COVID pages. I think that's a great resource beyond the law firms. And it's, it's one thing for us to put the information on the page and what we've been doing is we have the page and dumping the information and getting a lot of calls about specific issues and so we have the background and the, the people on the bench with those expertise um, and so we're getting a lot of phone calls about specific issues um, in addition to the more general resources but again a lot of I think the best resources out there beyond the boiling down, okay, it's an inch deep and a mile wide kind of information that you need just to kind of get your idea of what's out there. Um, you can get a lot of information on those agency pages beyond. Again, I work for a law firm, so I think we're doing a great job. <laughs> great. Um, so another set of questions that we've gotten relates to, um, you know, there's a lot of questions about employees, as people have mentioned. Um, and so I think it might be helpful, we touched on them a little bit, obviously, rather than providing um, specific employment guidance. Um, Chris, you talked a little bit about what Beam has been doing. Um, uh, and Nikki, it sounds like you're 
basically employees haven't had to come in too much. Have you guys gotten um, questions related to, you know, whether it's uh, sick time or testing or things like that that have come across your desk um, from your employees? Yeah, I mean, one of the questions we were struggling with um, from a privacy perspective is, you know, if an employee informs us that they've tested positive, you know, can we then share that information with other people in the company, um, certainly people that they work closely with or have been in contact with? And the advice I've received is, well, we cannot disclose their identity without the employee consenting to that. We can let their colleagues know that someone that they work closely with has tested positive and advise them of what precautions to take, um, but that we have to be careful about not revealing their identity. So that's, that's my understanding. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened yet, but I know um, Chris and I participate regularly in these um, kind of local general counsel calls for all the biopharma companies and you know it is an issue that a lot of um, GCs are facing at their companies now right as they as more people are testing positive um, but um, that's I don't know Chris and Jared if you've received other advice but that's the my understanding is that you can you know disclose that someone has tested positive but cannot reveal their identity unless the employee is comfortable with, with you doing that. Yeah that's the advice we've gotten and and like you we've been really lucky we have not had any employees who have tested positive. We have had employees who have had colds, other flus, and you know we do have a policy that if anyone is sick at all, that they stay home. Um, but you know, as our CSO keeps reminding us, he's like, we will eventually have someone who tests positive, and so we've we've prepared for that, and we've gotten the same advice from you, Nikki, that without their consent, we can't reveal their identity, um, but we do you know have an obligation to tell the people that they work with. And, and one thing to add just to this is I think you guys are right, and that's generally the advice that we're giving out. When you are a larger company, for those on the phone with larger, where you have multiple locations, depending on the size, if it's a location with one person, obviously this doesn't hold true. But if you have multiple locations and there's a significant force, workforce at each of those locations, I think adding that, you know, we had someone in Burbank, California, test positive where there's 500 people, you're not outing someone and you're not, you know, potentially putting protected or private information out there. I think you can add that additional detail. It's you just want to be careful of just how specific and how easily someone can be identified. I don't, I don't have anything different to add. I just had a question for, for um, Nikki and Chris and Terrence, if you guys have, is, are you working with local or uh, CDC folks? If, if you do, have you received any, uh, you know, requests for information. I, I know you haven't had a positive yet, Chris, so maybe it hasn't happened, but I wonder if the CDC is actually working with companies when this does happen and they take over the communications and they take over the, uh, you know, the details on tracking down, where did this come from? Who was the last person? Because I know they're doing that in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. They're following a positive test as far as they can. And then for us, we get a request as a company and says, hey, you guys are in the chain here of this person that tested positive, then you got to think about, well, what records can I give away for this employee? And I think it still goes back to Nikki's point, which is you got to be really careful about sharing identities. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that as an employer, we don't have an obligation to report a positive test to any, you know, federal or state agency. Right. That, that is not our obligation as an employer. I don't know, Chris, if you've received different guidance. Um, 
I'm not sure, but uh, someone had mentioned that it might be um, an OSHA reportable event. But to be honest, I haven't looked into that thoroughly. I've been meaning to. <laughs> it's on the list of things that I need that I've been meaning to look into. Sorry to raise it. <laughs> you know, well, one of the things I've been wondering, and I, I know we have some government folks on the phone, is you know thinking ahead to when we um, hopefully one day soon I'll go back to the office. You know, what are the are, are there going to be state or federally mandated requirements? Are we going to be kind of coming up with these on the fly in terms of, you know, do we require employees to wear masks? Do we take their temperature, you know, when they come into the office? I mean, these are things that have been going on in Asia as people have started to go back to work. Um, and I just, you know, I'm thinking ahead to, you know, do we need to get masks for all employees, when, which are not easy to obtain um, when we go back to the office? And, and can we take people's temperature? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's something we can even do um, under, you know, OSHA guidance and privacy and there's a whole bunch of legal issues running around there, but something I've already started to kind of think ahead and start to plan for. That's a great point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of issues to unpack there. I think those are challenges both for people who are dealing with workforce now who are continuing to operate and then also people who are have been working remotely or people haven't been working and are going to come back and they're all good questions obviously the supply of personal protective equipment is not great and it's not likely to get better in the immediate future and so there are some guidelines that OSHA's put out and that CDC has put out and they they're very similar quite frankly I mean they reference each other um, and really there's a few things to consider. At a high level, OSHA requires you to protect your employees. You're required to provide the equipment they need for a safe workspace. That being said, what do you do when that's not available? There's not a great answer to that. Um, there's no guidance on that because OSHA's not going to say, okay, if you, can't, if you can't protect your employees, we're going to be operating. And so situation. Um, I don't think that there's a great answer right now because we have this dichotomy of we're an essential service. We are providing important service to the country, protecting um, you know the healthcare of the country, and then the outside of that is how we protect our own people. And I don't know if that's a good answer. Um, Ogaz talked about steps we can take in terms of increased ventilation and physical barriers if you need to wear screens um, and it talks about equipment but it doesn't get in and it necessarily can't just because of all the different variations uh, of situations so point to shed their answer but uh, they're going to I think are likely to continue Yeah. Chris, do you have anything else sort of in the, um, while we're on the topic of employees and both, you know, current plans for um, as your employees come into work and face challenges uh, in creating a safe workplace and then thinking that you guys, either Chris or Jared, have done uh, for eventual returns? I just want to round out the employee related. I know that's a big topic and a lot of people are thinking about that. Um, so before we move on to the next topic. Yeah, we started to think about it and um, 
you know, I guess the only concrete thing we know is that we can't we can't have everyone return at the same time. Um, going back to what I said before, we're in really close quarters. We're open office. Our desks are really close together. So, you know, we're not sure if we're going to have like two shifts or if we're going to, you know, like sort of the morning shift and the afternoon shift or if we're going to have the the Monday, Wednesday, Friday shift and the Tuesday, Thursday shift. But but I, I suspect it's going to be a long time before the, the entire um, company can be together in one place. I think I think a lot of it's going to be driven um, by you know personnel policies at at companies, but as well as the, the local governors. Um, you know, in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, they seem to be be closely aligned between the two states where where we operate out of in the United States. In the UK, um, you know, I'll give you a, 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 an example. The investor we have has multiple offices globally, hundreds and thousands of employees, and almost all of them are open space. That is going to be a huge issue. Um, a month ago, we said no travel between offices. So if you were in Western UK, you could not go to Southern or, or Eastern UK. If you were in Boston, you couldn't go to the, the New Hampshire office. You couldn't go to the California office. So a lot of those things are going to have to be put in place. But, you know, I see workforces becoming more virtual. I think that people are going to be working from home a lot more. Uh, Chris, you've got a huge lab space. That's going to be a different, a different animal to attack. But I think companies are going to downsize in terms of, of real estate and space, and they're going to start becoming more nimble, and they're going to be home more. and And I think it's going to drive a a new way we all work. And Zoom is going to really do well. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, and one set of employees that we haven't talked about, and Nikki, I, I wonder if you can speak to this, is the field force um, and for your commercial reps and how, you know, when there is an ability to in some fashion return to work, um, if you guys have thought about, you know, how this, the sales force and the field force will interact with healthcare professionals perhaps in a different way. Sure. So, yeah, we have a field force. Um, we have about 100 employees in the field. So it's a combination of sales reps and, um, and MSLs. And so they've been grounded for a few weeks now, um, even before kind of we all moved to, to working virtually. Um, the dialysis clinic started, um, you know, prohibiting sales reps from coming in for the safety of the patients. And then we made the decision to do so as well. Um, so it's been it's been challenging. Um, they are able to do you know Zoom calls obviously with providers, but frankly the providers are so busy right now, it's hard to really get any time with them. Understandably, um, so it's been really it's been really challenging for the for the commercial folks. Um, and we'll see, we'll see um, how this plays out over the coming months. But I imagine it's going to be a slow reentry and it's going to be a while before, um, before the field reps can go back into um, nephrologist offices and dialysis clinics. But I think to Jared's point, I mean, we have seen how amazing this technology is now with Zoom. It's, it's really kind of almost as good as being there. And so I think, you know, as providers have more availability to talk to reps, I think there will be more, you know, Zoom calls with reps and so forth. Um, I, think, I think that will definitely increase um, over time. It's, it's amazing that we live in this age where we have this fantastic technology. Yeah, we've actually even uh, continued to do recruiting by Zoom. So there are candidates that, you know, no one has met, you know, in person and we're, you know, hiring and onboarding people. 
And along these lines, um, you know, to the extent anyone is in the audience, um, another topic is surrounding commercial launch. If, you know, if new products are set to get approval and to roll out, if people have done any thinking about how new products may be rolled out in, in this world where um, face-to-face interactions are much different than for any other previous product launch. I can certainly speculate and, and provide some thoughts on what's going to happen, but I would I would be uh, we're not in the position, fortunately and unfortunately, to be launching uh, during this time. But it doesn't say that you know next year we couldn't be in another uh, similar situation, and, and it would be our time to launch. I think companies are going to have to be creative. It's unfortunate that that it happens like this. The pharmaceutical industry is probably going to get the hit the hardest in terms of sales and marketing. Um, people still need drugs. People still need their prescriptions. So that's not going to end. The pharmacies are still staying open. So that's a good sign. Um, but certainly marketing, there's, there's going to be a lot of ads, probably a lot of TV ads, probably a lot of web-based ads, a lot more than direct sales, salesperson contact. Um, it's just going to be an evolution in the business. But certainly launching a new, a new drug right now, um, you know, if it's, if it's something that's, you know, over the counter or something like that, I see that a little bit tougher, but if it's something the patients need in oncology or things like that, I think that's going to be fine. Um, the PIs are still going to find the patients and they're still going to be recommending the prescriptions. It's just going to be a little bit slower. Right. Anything else employee or employment related before we switch gears? Um, okay, well, we actually got one other question before, uh, which relates to privacy issues using Zoom and other providers um, and recordings. So that's a, a really good question. Um, I don't know if uh, anyone in-house has done any thinking. I know that there's been a lot of information put out about privacy in general. Um, people are concerned about, you know, not only employee privacy, but with everyone working from home, document privacy, but also online and how secure the video conferencing, whether it's Zoom or other uh, services, have been. I don't know if you guys have had questions that come up, uh, have come up around that. Um, obviously, there's very many sensitive conversations being discussed on these platforms. No, I'll, I'll start off. The the one thing we do like about the, I don't know, Zoom, there's go-to meeting, there's hangouts, there's all kinds of them. One thing that's been helpful for us with our CROs in the, in the project management side is the transcription, is the recording, um, but it also leads to the counter side, which is who else is hearing that? Who else is seeing that? I'm still a firm believer that if you have a meeting on Zoom, you close out of that one and go on to the next one that's scheduled rather than saying, hey, John and Jim, can you stay behind? And just listening because I, I fear that that microphone is still working somewhere else. Someone will figure that out. In terms of intellectual property, where, where my biggest concern is, um, even with email and all that stuff, it's 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 still it's out there. It's concern. Someone can hear what you're doing. Someone can see what you're doing. Now we've got um, people working in coffee shops. Of course, that's not happening right now, but that can happen where you got a conversation in a coffee shop. As lawyers, um, there's a lot of ethics classes right now on cybersecurity on confidentiality, on privilege, on all this stuff that's happening with the remote workplaces. So I encourage everyone to take a look at those because these law firms and others are putting out some great materials on how you can protect and, and what is accidental disclosure, you know, in, in those terms um, in, the, in the workplace setting when it's virtual. Yeah, the one other thing that I would add is as a, a lawyer that does a lot of compliance work, does a lot of government investigations, 
The challenge with transcripts is, of course, now conversations, and we always counsel clients that be careful with what you're putting in an email, be careful with what you're writing down. Now, if you have these transcripts and you have these recordings, everything is being recorded and put down. And so an offhand comment at the end of a meeting where someone says something that can be read out of context or used or twisted if there's a government investigation or some kind of audit, that's a big concern um, because it, now it's written and it's there for someone to find. Um, communication practices become even more important the dirty in terms of someone hearing or not is the just the that should think about with the clients in terms of if it's on the front page of the New York Times, how do we have a statement of how we feel about the problem? So that's a very concern that I recommend everyone think about and everyone remind your your employees that um, everything can be used to show intent. So. And I think just simple things that, um, you know, making sure that you're using, whether it's an audio conference platform or a video conference that actually shows all of the attendees um, and encouraging employees to actually look at who's on the call and who's, you know, it's easier in a video meeting, you can see who's here. Um, but with a lot of these, tele, you know, the phone platforms, they do allow you to see who are the participants and just keeping an eye on that rather than blindly dialing in can be um, a simple way to make sure that only the people that you think are hearing the conversations are hearing it at least live. Um, and then the other aspect is using passcodes. And again, simple steps that I think can make a big difference um, to make sure just reminding people uh, to keep an eye on. So switching gears a little, um, another topic that we've heard a lot of discussion on, obviously, is in this industry, people have contractual obligations uh, all over the place, whether it's to suppliers or clinical trials or collaboration partners and things like that. Um, and to the extent that you guys have already been impacted by, um, you know, inability to perform, whether it's your own inability to perform or to get supplies, Chris, even on the, you know, the lab side, um, how have you guys been thinking about looking at your contracts, the, the ones that are in place now, and have you ha started to have trouble um, with, with people not performing under those contracts or you, your own company not being able to perform? Yeah, I mean, I'll speak to this. I, I think, you know, while we haven't encountered it yet, I'm kind of anticipating that we will both try we'll be trying to both enforce the force majeure clause in some cases and in other cases defend against it so i'm trying to be careful about the arguments i make and i think they're they're obviously very fact specific and it depends on you know what exactly um is required what are the obligations under the contract um but you know when you think about a force majeure as an unforeseeable event um i think you know, this this pretty much qualifies in my mind. What's interesting now is in, in new contracts, I see, you know, COVID-19 clauses appearing and, you know, in many ways it's because that is no longer unforeseeable. So, you know, at this point, if you're entering into a contract, can you really sweep that into the force majeure clause? I don't think so. So then people try to add a separate COVID-19 clause, which 
you know, is sometimes very broad and, and overreaching in terms of, you know, vendors and suppliers not wanting to be held responsible for anything um, if they're impacted by COVID-19. So, um, so yeah, so it, it, it's definitely going to be an interesting time for the force majeure clause, which, you know, you very rarely see used. And I think now there's been a whole lot of discussion around it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds over the coming months. I don't know, Jared and Christine, if you have anything to add. I think we're in the same position that you are. Um, you know, first of all, that um, you know, we have we have companies with obligations to us. We have obligations to our licensors. So you know, to some extent, it's you know, I have to be concerned about our inability to perform, and our you know our contract research organizations' inability to perform. Um, and I have to admit, yeah, you know, I always read the force majeure clause. But I, I didn't really scrutinize it before. And of course, one thing I did was I went back and looked at all of our agreements and they've actually am surprised at the variety in the specificity of the different force majeure clauses. Yeah, I think that's an important fact. I think Nikki has a lot of the importance to consider. These are usually very, very fact specific clauses. There's some general language that tends to be used, but they're very fact specific. Um, and the situations where you're trying to um, and granted, we're talking about COVID, but we're also talking about very specific fact scenarios. Um, and the other part that uh, made me smile, actually, Nikki, when you said it was, you're thinking about trying to use the clause in one instance and defend the other. And the question becomes, if I try to claim force majeure, do I cut my legs out from underneath me when I then try and defend against a supplier who isn't going to meet their requirements? And so, that's an important consideration and knowing, you know, what your left and right hands are doing at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think when we, when this first started, we got a whole companies talking about the, the force majeure clause and how to use it. We haven't seen a lot of activity in the life sciences market in terms of it trying to use the cause yet. We've seen a lot in energy and a few other um, industries, but I imagine as people start having more issues um, with supply chain and everything, then this is going to become a hot topic once again. Yeah, I've actually had I've been looking at a lot of them specifically for clients. And I think one thing that you said, Chris, is it's amazing how varied they are. Um, in general, some of the advice that we've been getting from our litigation colleagues is these are typically applied pretty narrowly. And so that does cause you to go back and specifically look at them. Um, and you see everything from an enumerated specific list to a non-exhaustive list that is anything beyond a party's reasonable control. Um, and sometimes it doesn't have that language. And so um, it, it is very fact specific. And I think that, um, you know, whether epidemic is even listed uh, is sort of a, a toss of the coin at this point. And so, you know, putting people on notice and thinking about how you start to invoke them in, uh, establish a record about inability to perform on on the early side based on what your specific clause says. And then the other piece that you were talking about, Nikki, is, you know, we know our circumstance now. How do we appropriately put language in to contemplate that uh, we're entering into this contract in the face of the epidemic, the COVID situation? However, you know, we both know there's going to be some performance delays as a result of that, but don't want to completely cut off the idea that you don't know what those performance delays are going to be and how long they're going to go on and thinking about um, how to protect whether you're the performing party or the party receiving um, performance. 
this topic spurred a bunch of questions <laughs> on our Q&A um, function. Um, and so I'm just looking through those. I think most of the um, conversations that I've had, I don't know if you know anyone else has a different experience, but we've been looking specifically at the force measure. The question was about whether we've been looking at the force measure provisions itself or more relying on you know the doctrine of uh, frustration of purpose of the, under the contracts. We haven't generally gone that route. We've been able to, for the contracts that I've looked at specifically, um, find something in the force measure clause for now that has allowed uh, the clients to excuse performance, at least on a temporary basis. Some of the force measure provisions, or many of them, have a set period of time. Um, it's sort of the cutoff after which there can you need to find a different avenue where there's a termination right if the force measure continues. So I think the longer that this goes on for those provisions, again, getting back to the variability in the language, that could um, cause a different set of issues, uh, you know, depending. I, would just, I think that's exactly right. And we've seen a lot of that where we have not used the clause, but tried to renegotiate or come to other terms that are permitted under the agreement try not to go down a force majeure path if we don't have to. So I think that's exactly right, Hannah. The, the only thing I would say um, on this point is, is to step back. You know, we're all attorneys. We all have conflicts. We all like to go right to the contracts. We all like to go right to the law and say, ah, this is my, my prerogative. I've got the rights. Look at this case in Idaho. It says I can do this. You know what, take a step back and say, how can we work this out? You know, I, I try to take this situation like you do in a, in, you know, you, you hire a, a builder to put your addition on, you give him 80 grand, he doesn't show up for six months. You know, well, you gave him 80 grand, go work with him, see if he'll come back and, and start your house project. <laughs> I think here we've got to be a little bit more um, uh, willing to accept that things are not going to happen the way it says they're going to happen under the contract. And you just got to put your business hat on for a second and say, do we want to lose this vendor? Do we want to lose this third party? You know, can we wait two weeks? Can we work it out? So, um, because the courts are probably not going to entertain a lot of these lawsuits right now anytime soon. And if you want to keep your business moving, just, you know, look at the business side uh, at the same time you're looking at the legal hat. Right. I think that's a really important point. Not only, you know, A, the courts are closed except for emergency measures and query whether these are going to be the types of emergencies that they decide to hear anyways. Um, and, you know, the other point is that uh, you know, there's not a lot of, right now, um, court precedent around this matter. So figuring out an alternative remedy is going to be important and seeing if you can reach resolution rather than just running into court, which may or not be open or have the right answer. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and on the COVID-19 provisions, I mean, we've just started to be talking with um, with other parties who we're contracting with about, you know, the language. And, you know, sometimes to Jared's point, it's, it's just as simple as putting in a provision that says, you know, we recognize this pandemic is going on currently. We, we, we recognize that it may disrupt one party's ability to perform under this agreement and we'll get together and try to work it out in good faith. You know, just a plain old, you know, business, let's cooperate kind of solution, acknowledging that this is an issue, but that you know, you're both going to um, use best efforts to try to work through it. I mean, sometimes it's really all you can do because you can't prescribe every possible you know, effect from this COVID-19 situation. And it's, it, the way it will impact the contract is probably something we're not even realizing or thinking about today. 
Great. So we got another question about um, recovering insurance, switching gears a little bit about recovering insurance claims. Um, and Jared, I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit about um, your thoughts on how a business might actually be able to see some of the relief. Right. Uh, there's, there's, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. So a lot of you are probably very familiar with, with insurance. You've got property damage, you've got bodily injury, you've got physical damage, however they define it. But I'm hearing a lot of people getting laid off. I'm hearing a lot of people losing money. And you look at the big guys like Boeing and, and American Airlines, and you got to think to yourself, do they not have loss of, loss of business coverage? So it's called interruption or disruption of business coverage. And I really implore everyone to look at your policies carefully because sometimes it's included. Most times it's not. Most times you have to pay for additional coverage. But it will cover things like mortgage, payroll, It'll cover lease. It'll cover other um, damages that you are, are continuing to incur right now. Um, but it's a new area. So be careful because COVID-19 doesn't have a single case in the United States right now in any court about um, business loss or interruption uh, loss from a business. But take a look at your policy. Get a copy of your entire policy. That's the first thing to do. Ask uh, you know whoever holds the copies for your company or ask your, your insurance agent to send you a copy of the entire policy see what's in there. If they send you all the forms without all the endorsements, then ask again and get all the endorsements to make sure you're not missing anything. But it's typically in the business coverage section. Um, it does cover a lot of things that you can get uh, reimbursement for. How long is your claim gonna take? You know, I mean, Allstate and Geico and a lot of these companies that have it, they all probably are 30 to 60 days. But right now they're probably flooded with these claims. Um, I'm surprised, you know, I have a lot of background in the insurance. I haven't heard a lot about this. Um, you know, friends are getting laid off at companies and I'm saying, well, did your manager ask the supervisor to see if there's a business loss coverage to, for your, for your employment? And well, they just wanted to put me on unemployment because they wanted me to be able to apply for, for unemployment. So take a look. You might, might get a, you might find a, um, a good nugget and you might find that you've been paying for it all along and it's been there right for you. Okay, I think the next topic to touch on is new collaborations and new um, agreements that you all may be entering into that are COVID specific. And have you seen um, what type of legal issues are we running into, whether it's clinical trials for these um, new treatments or you know, seeking FDA guidance on the standards that are gonna be applied, um, if there's a relaxing in the standards if the, for new treatments and, and for trials around those. I wish we had a treatment for COVID-19 medicavia, but we don't, so I can't really speak to that. Yeah, the, the only thing I would say, we mentioned in the beginning, is we've, we've had some um, vendors reach out to us to see if we will fund uh, some research in our lab. It took a couple weeks to find out if we could get a hold of the virus. You can test any influenza-type virus to see if, if, depending on what you're looking for, if you're looking at lung, uh, you know, issues, if you're looking at respiratory um, um, treatments that may already have a lot of data behind them and you just got to put a virus in there to see if it has antiviral properties. Uh, we've been, we've been, you know, taking requests and we've been starting it up. It's been very slow. I think the bigger companies with in-house labs that can get a hold of viruses much, much quicker uh, will we'll do a good job. And I know everyone's looking into it, but, you know, look at pharma in general. There's not a lot of money in, in vaccines. There's not a lot of money in um, viruses and they come and go. So you do three years of drug development under the typical 
FDA regime after you've spent 10 years developing a antiviral and then the virus never reappears. So there's a lot of uncertainty. So what we've done is gone back to our, we have a set of anti-malarial drugs that we're looking at right now and kind of going that road because we did see that the chloroquine had some had some uh, success in its, its beginning stages. So certainly there's interest. There's a lot of people looking into it and, and the emergency approvals with the FDA seem appealing. I don't know what the process is gonna entail and how fast it really happens, but certainly getting some governor support or senator support on your way up the chain, it looks like it could help. Yeah, and you know, we don't have a specific COVID-19 program, but um, you know, most of, most of Beam is R&D focused. And you know what we have been observing, uh, which I think everyone has been observing, is that there's um, a lot freer flow of information in the research community, which is actually really nice to see. Um, you know, people used to be fairly protective and worry about a publication, and now um, information is just flowing freely, you know, across the country, internationally. So um, it really does feel. I mean, you you can only hope that that will accelerate the pace of research a little bit. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, just in, in terms of the kind of relaxation of requirements generally, the FDA and the CM and CMS are, you know, changing the rules all over the place. So I think, you know, as a company, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, we are constantly thinking about, you know, where do we need help from CMS or from FDA? And given the circumstances, you know, can we ask for it here? Um, as I mentioned, our, you know, the CKD patients are really at risk at, during this crisis. And so, you know, we're trying to think of ways where we can be helpful to them um, and ask CMS or FDA, depending on what the issue is, to be helpful to them. Um, because, you know, it's kind of like, well, they're relaxing requirements for everyone else. You know, why shouldn't these patients um, who are, who are immune compromised and at risk also get the benefit of that. So, you know, we're trying to to help and help this patient group in that way as well. Great. Um, so I think that um, we'll take a minute um, to to sort of open it up if people have any other questions we have a couple minutes left and we want to respect uh, the hour i know everyone is off to their next zoom meeting um if if anyone does have any other questions we'd be happy to, to answer them I mean, one topic that I'm curious about, just to hear how folks either on the panel or on the line um, are handling is clinical trials. I know that that's an issue for a lot of people in terms of how do we continue our clinical trials? How are we doing gathering the data, doing the, the necessary monitoring? Um, if anyone has any, again, on the panel or otherwise, any insights or nuggets that they've been doing or just want to share what you guys have been doing, I think that would be particularly interesting. I'll start it out, Terrence. We, we, we've seen a slowdown um, with communications with the hospitals and the, and the, and the PIs for, for sure. 
And we're respecting that 100%. We're actually not reaching out for a couple months. We're going to try to give the hospitals a chance to recover. The patients that are receiving treatments um, that have life-threatening uh, illnesses are continuing on. I was on a call this morning with our clinical trial team, and uh, they have other clients as well, and they are still staying busy. The U.S. has slowed down. It's either a company decision or, or a hospital decision at this point whether to stop a trial, and it's really drug-dependent, patient-dependent, and how they view their programs. So what you don't want is to have a normally healthy person become at risk by showing up to the hospital to get their treatment and they are exposed to the coronavirus. And then um, unfortunately, now that they're in the hospital, they're on your trial and they're getting treated for COVID-19. And it, you know, it slows things down from a, from a perspective of your trial data from the patient now that was healthy is unhealthy. Um, so I think it's a, it's again, you step back and you know, if, if this is still happening in August when we're about to start our trials, we may as a company have to decide whether we want to treat patients um, until that they will not be exposed because ours is a, a direct injection catheter treatment. They'll have to come to the hospital for it. And we just got to make that decision at that, that point. I, I think everyone's going to have to do the same. Yeah, I think it really depends on the, as Jared said, on the nature of the trial and where you are in the trial, right? So if you're towards the end of the trial and patients have already completed their last visit, you're going to be much better positioned than a trial you're just starting to enroll. Um, and I know companies have announced that they're delaying trials because of that. Um, if it's, you know, if, if, for example, we're in the dialysis space, if someone was doing a, a trial in the dialysis space, it might be easier because these patients have to come in unless they're on home dialysis. They're still coming in three times a week for their dialysis treatment. So I think it really depends on where you are in the life of the trial, what type of trial it is. Um, it, it's really kind of dependent on that. And I know every company is impacted differently, but I know a lot of companies have put their trials on hold because you know, patients just aren't going to the clinic if they don't have to. And have you gotten um, inquiries from your clinical trial sites, Nikki, at the company level about seeking guidance as to what, what, how you want the trial to proceed, or have you been mostly allowing the clinical trial sites to make the determination? Yeah, I can't really speak to that because those inquiries really come in through our clinical group and our medical group, not to me. I don't get involved in, in those conversations, but, um, but I know we are generally in touch with our sites regularly. Our phase three trial is very large. We have hundreds of sites, so um, we're just trying to keep in contact with them and, and keep the communications going as we have throughout the trial, but um, it's, it's a difficult time, and I think one thing this, um, this crisis has made us all realize is how important this industry is, um, and, you know, that's, that's the silver lining <laughs> for those of us in this industry who, um, you know, we get a lot of negative uh, criticism in the media about drug pricing, et cetera. But I think this has made us and, and the country really realize how important this industry is and how important innovation is. Um, so, you know, it makes me proud to be a part of, of this industry, especially here in Boston. Well, I think that's, sort of um, the end of the questions that we had. Um, the BBA Life Sciences Group is a fairly new group for the BBA, um, and we would love to hear feedback from folks on the phone. Um, we were thinking of having this be a more regular webinar and presentation, and we would definitely look to, to the community to see how we could make it most 
useful. It's meant to be informal and useful. Those are the two things that we um, have put as our sort of mission for this uh, as we're um, trying to keep the community connected in an industry as, as Nikki suggested is um, getting a, you know, a lot of uh, attention right now and still very much operating. And so um, please do give any feedback that you have either to any of us or to the BBA directly and we will um, try to make this on a regular basis a, a panel and a present, set of presentations that can be useful to our industry on a timely basis. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks, parents. Thank you. Well. Everyone stay safe. All right. Take care. Bye.